0: Hey everybody, welcome to the Hunt For Real podcast. I'm your host, Tony Peterson. Today's episode is brought to you by Montana Decoy. This company won me over in 2012 when I was on a piece of public land in Nebraska, struggling to arrow a buck during the rut. In desperation, I popped up a Montana decoy below my stand because I had these deer cruising through this CRP and this mixed cedars, and I couldn't get them to come over to where I had a tree stand. And I thought, what the hell, I'm going to put this thing out and see if I can call one over or see if it'll catch sight of this decoy and come in. And that's exactly what happened. I arrowed a great eight pointer the first morning I was down there and I thought, "Uh, I'm on to something because I am a mobile hunter. I am a hang and hunt guy. And I've never really relied on decoys because I hated carrying in a full body decoy. And it just really wasn't an option. That led me to Montana decoys. Now, when I'm turkey hunting, when I'm elk hunting, when I'm antelope hunting, and of course, deer hunting, that's always an option because they have so many different models that'll, they weigh next to nothing. They fit in a day pack and they are truly mobile decoys that can enhance your setup. If you're interested in something like this, go to montanadecoy.com, check out their offerings. If you see anything that catches your attention there, punch in the code huntforreal real 20 and they're gonna give you 20% off your first order. This episode is also brought to you by Wilderness Athlete. People ask me all the time what they can buy to make themselves a better hunter. And I'm starting to think that the best thing they can do is just take care of their body, get in shape, get in a little better shape. You don't need to be able to run marathons and climb mountains with elephants on your back, but taking care of your body, taking care of your mind with the right supplements, the right exercise, the right food, it's a big deal. It's going to make you a better hunter. and You're going to enjoy it more. If you have a little trouble with that stuff or you want to boost your quality of life and your quality of workouts check out Wilderness Athlete. They've got all kinds of different pre-workout, post-workout supplements, vitamins, probiotics, anything that you might need to give yourself a little bit of an edge. If you go to wildernessathlete.com and you punch in the code HFR20, you're going to get 20% off your first order. This is good for everything but package deals, dark timber products, and Heather's Choice items. My guest today is an unconventional guest his name is Jim Watson. He's from the University of Arizona and he is a bioarchaeologist. He just co authored a paper on how hunter gatherer societies and tribes back in, you know, eight, nine, 10,000 years ago, we've always thought the roles were very gendered men hunted, women gathered and he's kind of shaken that paradigm up a little bit by some of his scientific findings down in Peru and he's finding out that women were just as much of hunters back then as guys were and his research and his findings and how he backs them up and and how he looks at the lessons that we today as humans and hunters can take from these people who lived 9,000 years ago it's just incredible stuff I enjoyed this one so much he's such an interesting guy and I think you're going to really really enjoy it too and as always thank you so much for listening to hunt for real podcast I know there's 5 million hunting podcasts out there and you have a lot to choose from so that you come here and you listen to us for an hour hour and a half every week really means something so thank you for that
1: in one minute everything can change and it can become the best hunt of your life. It's a reality. Really understanding the landscape. That's what kills big deer. The Hunt for Real
0: Podcast. Jim, welcome to the Hunt for Real Podcast. Well,
1: thanks for having me. I appreciate
0: it. I, I always get super excited when I have a guest who I know is gonna make me feel really dumb. And reading the uh the the research paper that you you co-authored made me feel really, really dumb. And that's, that's what we're going to get into. But before we do that, can you just let the listeners know what you do and why we're chatting?
1: Sure. Um, so I am a bioarchaeologist. And so it's sort of a subset of archaeologists who focus on human remains from archaeological context. And so skeletons are my specialty. And my role in this is really was contributing to that analysis of the human remains that were found, the skeletons that were found. Um, So my position at the University of Arizona, I've got a couple, but um, I'm a curator at the Arizona State Museum, which is at the U of A. And then I'm also a professor in the School of Anthropology. And so this was one of a number of research projects that I'm involved in.
0: Yeah, this is the the research project we're going to talk about. But let's back up a hair there. You said you specialize in skeletons. What happens to a person in their life where they end up being able to say that sentence?
1: (laughs) How do you get to where you got? Well, I mean, I always had an interest in history. Uh, and then archaeology to me is really sort of the materiality of history. You know, you get to hold things that people held in the past or manufactured in the past or dig houses that they lived in in the past. Um, and so that sort of was an extension of that. And then within that, you know, archaeology really is the study of human behavior in the past and of, you know, our adaptations to the world and, and society and whatnot. But, um, what i found most interesting were the human remains themselves so if we're studying human behavior and we're looking at archaeologists normally looking at stone tools or ceramics and things like that you know reconstructing human behavior from that stuff is interesting but to me what's more interesting is reconstructing the lives of the people themselves and so the skeletons are what can tell you at least to some degree they can tell you what those lives were like and how they were affected and so that's that's sort of how i went down that road.
0: So you you had a bend toward being a detective of some sort and it, it, it kind of broke in the direction of being almost like a forensic detective going, I want to know, I'm I'm curious about how people lived, you know, eight, 10,000 years ago and what we can learn by, by the clues that are left today.
1: Right. And actually forensic anthropology is the same training. It's just sort of whether you focus on modern day victims or, um, you know, prehistoric ones or historic ones. And so we've all got the same training, you know, I've worked on forensic cases. It's just applying that same approach to people in the past.
0: So interesting. So let's talk about what happened down in Peru, Peru and what what's what's going on today with, with the argument. Can you just explain, were, were you down there when when the discovery was made or did you come in afterwards?
1: I came in afterwards. Okay. So um, Dr. Randy Haas, who's a professor at the University of California, Davis, this is um, part of his long-term research in the Titicaca Basin in Peru. And um, he's really interested in looking how people adapted to that environment because it's at high elevation. And so, um, you know, there's there's physi- physiological stresses that are associated with being living at that altitude um, <clears throat> and the cold as well. But his interest has always been in understanding how early people were resided in that area and their adaptations to that environment as well. And so his long-term project is really looking for the earliest people up on the Altiplano on this high elevation, the Andean Plateau. And so um, I had done the analysis of the skeletons that he had recovered from a previous site uh, a couple of years beforehand. And when he went out there to, uh, he found another site that he thought was earlier and he started excavating that. So I wasn't there at the find itself. But um, he said, we found some more skeletons this time. And the thing was, he was very excited because at the time uh, when he informed me, hey, see, we've got more skeletons for you to analyze. Come on down when you get a chance. Uh, He said, what's really cool is we have a hunter. And he said, we know we have a hunter because this individual was found with this hunter's toolkit, which included the entire suite of uh, mostly stone tools that would have been associated with you know, uh, hunting and the butchering and processing the animal.
0: Yeah. And, and these remains, these are burial remains, right? This wasn't, this wasn't somebody that was out there and got whacked by, you know, something in the, in the, this was somebody who was actually buried, correct?
1: Right. Yeah. Yeah. So the individuals all died from something. I think in most cases, the preservation of the skeletons were really poor. So it was difficult to determine perhaps what they died from, but, um, all the individuals died from, let's say, natural causes in one way or another, and then were buried in the site by their loved ones or by the community. So, yeah, it was an intentional burial. It wasn't sort of fell in a crevasse in a cave, and we find it, you know, a thousand years later. Yeah, and, and
0: that there's a difference there because they do find occasionally, especially, you know, you'll you'll hear about people climbing mountains or something who will find somebody get unearthed that died from the conditions most likely. And you expect those people to have their toolkit with them or whatever, whatever's left after how many thousands of years. But these, these skeletons that you're brought in to analyze are buried with their kits and, and some of their, like, you have to assume are their meaningful possessions with them, correct?
1: Right. Yeah. And, that's why the argument is that there's something particularly meaningful about these individuals because none of the other individuals in the sample, I think there were, um, I think there were eight individuals recovered from the site, uh, that were buried there. And only these two, only two of them had any, uh, artifacts buried with them. So that means their, their family, the community, their loved ones intentionally placed these artifacts with them. And so they're definitely sending a message. Um, whatever that was, you know, could is up potentially up for some debate. Um, but yeah, that, that's why these individuals stood out as, as being special.
0: Yeah, this this would be like I mean, this is probably a really bad example, but this would be like if grandpa died and he loved golfing, you'd bury him with a putter or something. And 8000 right. years down the road, somebody would dig him up and go, wait a minute. This doesn't yeah. this doesn't yeah. seem coincidental. This seems very intentional to the individual's identity.
1: Right. Exactly. And that's, that's sort of hopefully the message that they're trying to send. And
0: when you, when he calls you up and says, listen, we've, we've got a new skeleton or a new group of skeletons. What are you, when you, when you hear that, what are you thinking you're going to go find? Like when, when, when this call came in, what are you expecting out of this from your
1: experience? Um, Well, usually the baseline is trying to determine or estimate the sexes of the individual, whether it's male or female, estimate the age of the individual, and then usually try and look for any evidence of pathology more than anything, and whether that's contributes to the manner of death of the individual, or we're just looking at what sort of affected this individual during their life. And so there's sort of there's plenty of other things to try and look at. Um, for example, in the, the earlier sample that we looked at, we were particularly surprised because we found a strange wear pattern on their teeth. Um, On the front teeth in particular, on the back side of the the incisors, the upper teeth, they were worn flat on the back side, um, which is something that's only been seen in in other cultures where they they process tubers, and they usually use their front upper teeth to sort of peel the tuber, Um, and it's been documented actually in historical populations as well. And so this was an exciting find for us, not something that we expected, because this is in the area where tubers were domesticated originally. You know, South America's several dozen species of potatoes and tubers and things like that. And so to find the evidence on the skeleton of them in the process, potentially of domesticating tubers was pretty exciting. And so that was sort of something that beyond the baseline, you know, what we expected to find.
0: And what else did you not expect to find that you found, which is the the impetus for this whole conversation?
1: Right. And, uh, you know, Randy has said uh, uh, in numerous interviews that when he found the, the burial and they found the toolkit, they all got excited because they had said, we've got a hunter. And they thought perhaps maybe this was a chief or someone of major importance. Um, and so they had already placed their bias in it and suggested that this individual was a male. And so, you know, when I came to do the analysis, he said, Hey, this is super exciting. We've got this hunter's toolkit with this individual. And I think perhaps maybe he kept saying with this guy, you know, and he said, I, I got to show you the, the tools and, you know, he showed me the, the projectile points, the arrowheads and things like that I said, okay, great. Well, you know, and I'll go do the analysis. And as I was doing the analysis, I said, boy, this individual looks really gracile." um, you know, not very muscular, as it were, what I would expect for a male individual um, who was an adult. Plus, they were a young individual as well, between 17 and 19 years of age. And so, by that point, you've sort of built some some musculature. And so I said, "Boy, this just seemed way too gracile to be a male, from my experience." And so, um, so I said, "Randy, I think your hunter's a female, a woman." And he just, you know, you could see his his mind was blown. <laughs> Um, Did he think you were wrong? No. Um, You know, there is a there is a significant degree of error in the types of analysis that we do. And that's just related to human variation. And, you know, there are sort of when it comes to skeletons, there are some manly looking women and, and some womanly looking men when it comes to doing this sort of analysis. And so there's always there's always error. But so he was cautiously optimistic. That's what I'll say. You know, he wasn't going to say, no way, redo it. You know, he was cautiously optimistic, but he was also very excited at the possibility. And then he sort of took a step back and said, okay, I guess I shouldn't have made that assumption in the first place that it was a man. So um, the good thing is he works with a colleague of his, Dr. Glendon Parker, also at UC Davis, who has invented this technique to look at there the are sex-linked proteins in the teeth that, that basically lay down the, tooth, the tissues in your teeth. In the, in the dental enamel, right? Right, exactly, yeah. And um, because they're sex-linked, you can, you can identify within those proteins whether it's a male or a female. And so, you know, I had made my observations based on the skeleton, but he, he made sure to go through and do the analysis with, with his colleague and, and be sure that it was a female. And at the end, the other individual who was found with two projectile points with two arrowheads was actually a male. And I had, I had also made that estimation on that individual as well. So
0: were, were you, did you have an, I told you so a moment there?
1: Sort of. Yeah, <laughs> I did because he ran them on all of the samples that we had done, including the, the one from the previous site. And I was right in all but one individual. And so, uh, yeah, I, I felt, I felt good about my skills. <laughs> I, I love it.
0: I, I, I want to just back up one second. Cause I have a question. How do you, how do you know you're, you're looking at something that's 9,000 years old, r- you know, roughly, how do you right. know, how, how do you pin it down to 17, 19 year old, 17 to 19 year old female?
1: Well, in this case, it was easy because the teeth were preserved and she had a full dentition. And so, um, with the exception of the the third molar's the wisdom teeth, they were just coming in. And so that's the best way to estimate age in a skeleton because, um, you know, we know how – when teeth should come in, how long it takes sort of thing, and the amount of variation in in those uh, processes are pretty limited. And so that's where we were able to make that estimation of of how old the individual was. All the other teeth were in except for the, the wisdom teeth. They were in process. And she also had some wear developing on the rest of her teeth. So, you know, they've been in occlusion in long enough. She'd been chewing on them long enough that they'd start to worn down. Mm-hmm.
0: Is, there, is there a benefit? Uh, you know, you, you mentioned this was a high altitude or a higher altitude find. Um, it, because of, you know, a lot of times those are fairly dry environments. Is there, is there a benefit there? I mean, is it, are we, do we find better uh, skeletons to work with in those
1: environments? Um, no, I totally, what, what depends more than anything is soil acidity. That's the one thing that really destroys bone. Uh, because, you know, obviously all the organic com- component of bone goes away over time, part of decomposition. It's the mineral component that's the critical thing in, in preservation and skeletal remains. And so, uh, the soil acidity is what really destroys the, the chemical or the, sorry, the, the mineral component of bone. Hmm. Um, and so in this case, It is, it can be dry through part of the year, but there's also sort of a rainy season. And so it, and that's one of the things that is allows them to produce agriculture up there. Um, and so, and you know, feed the animals as well. Uh, so I don't think that had much to do with it. The real problem in this case was the older specimens are, of course, the more likely they are to degrade. And so, yeah, 9,000 years is a long time to have a skeleton sitting in the ground. But the major factor was that this was a field, a farmer's field. And so most of the site had actually been destroyed by farming. Like they had plowed up most of the, the top layers of the site. The burials were the last thing that were left because they were buried below the living surface. And so it hadn't, the plows hadn't gotten to that point yet. But with that being said, some of the burials were affected. And so I think some of the, some of the damage to the remains were the result of plows coming through. And digging up the bone. Yeah. Was it, so
0: what, what else do we know about this site then? Um, if, if if there's a burial site there, were they, I mean, were they residents there or were they, were they kind of nomadic, but they had
1: places that they, that, that had significance? Do, do we know that stuff? Not exactly. I mean, we know, uh, we know that site was important. That location was important because there are several individuals buried there over the course of at least a thousand years, maybe more. So I think minimally what we can say is that they definitely returned to that site. And it's very likely they were nomadic for sure. I mean, I'm sure they were using lots of different parts of the Altiplano, maybe even going down to lower elevations, but they can consistently return to that site. And the other thing that's impressive is that you're getting skeletons that are separated by hundreds of thousands well, or a thousand years at the same location, which means that especially at this time, you know, they weren't building huge stone constructions. They probably had Huts, or you know, that were made of you know grasses, or even maybe mud huts, but nothing really to mark those locations. So that that speaks to something that archaeologists like to call social memory—the idea that you can even pass down from generation to generation the knowledge of the very specific location of things. And there were a few cases where the skeletons may have been very close to each other, or one impinging upon another, indicating that perhaps they didn't know the exact location of where a previous person was buried. But they were all buried together in the same location. And so whether they were living there permanently, which is probably, I doubt, uh, the thing was they were returning to that location. And so that location was important for them. Um, And to me, you know, and maybe this is my fault. This is my, my cultural bias here. It didn't look like anything special compared to anywhere else across the landscape. So I think that means that people, because they started living there and because maybe someone died and they buried them there. It became a special place for that reason. And it became the place that they came back to each time.
0: So there wasn't like a, a, an obvious water source or something that you would say, okay, I could see, I could see this being in the, in the route and the lifestyle of these people.
1: There was a small stream nearby, but that stream, you know, went down the whole valley. And so, you know, they couldn't really pick any, any of the many ridges along that stream the whole way. Hmm. So it just, again, it did nothing particular call out that, that location as opposed to any other. In fact, the original site that Randy started digging on was within eyeshot of the one we were at. So we know that several thousand years later, at least 3000 years later, they were at another site at another location, uh, you know, further down the stream. So why not that one earlier? You know. Yeah. And then what's the break between the the ridge we were on versus the the edge of the bank they were on later on? You know why why change in that case?
0: When you see when you see that play out and go okay they're here they're there why does it make you feel this sense that we're just missing so much just because we haven't dug here or there hasn't been a field under the plow here for a couple hundred like does it make you feel like there's just a whole story? That we're just, we're getting like one paragraph out of this epic tome that we're just not
1: we just don't know yet, right? Yes, absolutely, and that's the nature of archaeology. I think I I always tell the story to my students. I had a professor when I first started who said, you know, out of all the behavior, all the humans that lived on the planet for you know the past million years or more, you know, what they left behind is one percent or less than one percent. Uh, what gets preserved through the processes of, of uh, preservation, you know, and like I talked about soil acidity is less than 1% of that. And then what we actually recover and find, you know, because of accidental finds or plowing a field or building a strip mall is less than 1% of that. So we're talking about a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of, of what reality was in the past. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, there's, there's tons of stuff that we're missing and, and it's really, but see, that's, what's exciting about it too, is that we've got these two sites that are so close together, And they're doing the exact same thing at these two locations, or similar things at least. but there's a break. And what's that break? You know, that's what the, those are the questions to me that get, get, get me excited about the doing the research and and the science that we practice. Do
0: do you think that location or that area, do you think, you know, you mentioned the the discovery with the tubers. Do you think there was some kind of seasonal food source there that, you know, the, obviously the, the climate, the environments changed a lot in that space. I mean, it would look totally different back when these people were alive. Do you think there was something like that there? Uh,
1: possibly. Yeah. I mean, the water source would have been important. Of course, um, there's a river nearby. Um, you know, it's it's generally a sort of a, a rolling plain surrounded by higher mountains. And so it also would have been an ideal environment for the animals in the area of uh, the Cunha, um, you know, camelid species, llamas and alpacas, and then the, the local deer species. Um, and so there would have been plenty of animals in the area in addition to the food, the, the plant resources. But like I said, it's most of the entire Altiplano looks that way. So, you know, I don't think there's anything particularly special about that one location. The one thing that I think maybe Randy and I have talked about a little bit, another sort of surprising discovery in that initial uh, analysis of that first site that, that I was talking about that's a little later in time, was they had also practiced head binding. And so they they developed these, you know, oddly shaped heads that, you know, people in the past would say were evidence of aliens landing in, in South America. Um, and that's really interesting, too, because especially amongst hunter-gatherers, among food foragers, um, it seems like a pretty elaborate practice that's really common later in time. Like the Inca, you know, would shape the heads of their infants and they'd have these really, you know, elaborate cone heads. Um, but for foraging peoples, you know, what's the motivation? And so one of the things that we've talked about is the potential development of territoriality. And so if you're going to be bumping into other foraging groups, competition is a real potential threat. And one of the ways that you could show that you belong or don't belong to a particular group is by modifying the head of your of your kids so that when you, they grow up, everyone can see that you belong or don't belong or. Um, So that's one potential, you know, uh, explanation for that behavior in these early peoples, you know, in these early, early foragers. And so if that's the case, then the idea of territoriality among foraging groups means that that location is really important because it's tying you to the land. And it's basically you're staking your claim within that territory as well.
0: That, that it's amazing to think of people, you know, essentially flying, you know, quote unquote, their own gang colors 9,000 right. years ago by altering the shape of their baby's skulls to claim, uh, different areas of the landscape that are beneficial to them. Uh, is that theory, did that theory get, catch you more crap than, no, we
1: haven't <laughs> you should... published that yet. Oh, That's, okay.
0: no, that... <laughs> you're, you're working on that one. Cause I was going to say, yeah. I I know this this uh this situation where you identified this these remains as a woman and then they they you know checked it out through another method and said, yes, this is this is a woman hunter, that has drawn you some flack that or that has created sort of a stir in the in the the scientific community as far as what we sort of accepted as the, the gendered role in hunter-gatherer societies versus what we're finding out now. How how is that for like how 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 much time do you spend defending that
1: yeah that's a big part of it absolutely and you know a lot of that that's where our argument is is that there's so much inherent gender bias in our own society that we're projecting that into the past and this idea of man the hunter which was actually formalized in um a symposium series and a conference in the in the 70s um has become such a part of our understanding of our ethos and our interpretations of people in the past, especially related to hunting and big game hunting in particular. Our argument is, is that it, it's, it pervades everything that we do, everything that we see to the point where um, that's where uh, Randy made the decision to go back and say, well, you know, if we have this case and we, we know 100% that it's a woman uh, and that she was buried with this hunter's kid. Of course, we're making assumptions about that relationship between what she was buried with and her role in life. Um, and so that can come under attack by some of our colleagues and it, and it was, and they said, just because she's buried with a hunter's kit doesn't mean she was a hunter. Okay, fine. What, what else does it mean? You know, you tell me that's, what are your interpretations? Um, what is their, what is their devil's advocate argument though? Uh, that it's representational and that it means something different than our interpretation of, of her being a hunter. Um, and that those, you know, I don't know, I, uh, it, the problem is I don't buy it. And so I'd have just done, you know, to me, if, I'd say, okay, a projectile point, maybe like if you have an arrowhead or something like that, fine. But I mean, the fact that you have the, the kit from the beginning, from the the hunt and the kill to the processing and the tanning of the hide all in that one kit, I, you know, I just, uh, and maybe I'm got such a narrow perspective on it because that's what I believe. But that's that's the way I see. And they, their suggestion is that there could be other associations that um, maybe she was the daughter of a hunter or maybe she was a shaman in her community and um, hunting magic, especially among foragers, is particularly important. So maybe these things were never used or they're, you know, again, representational. So that that's their argument on that side of it. Yeah, I I read those arguments
0: and what I'd like to... Ask those people because I I tend to agree with you. It doesn't make sense when you look at the contents of that kit. It's not like they just chucked in some things that meant something. There's there's a there's an order. There's a comprehensiveness to it that seems not random. It's it right. doesn't seem coincidental. And what it made me think about is if you go. It, we, we, we have it so good these days where we don't really deal with a lot of discomfort or a lot of real hunger. We think we do because we're yeah. we're pretty soft, but we don't. Yeah. And I was thinking about this, like when you go, if I go elk hunt in the mountains for eight or 10 days, I get closer to real hunger than I do when I'm at home. And you start to, you know, it's, it's funny when you do that, you start to like fantasize about food. Like you really, right. you really get deep into it. And that's nothing. You're not starving to death. You know, you're, you're just, you're putting your body in a position to be like, okay, give me the calories. Like I I, I actually need them now. And it makes you realize, you know, you're, you're out there and this is a luxury, right? We're, we're hunting for elk. I don't need the, I I can eat other ways, but what you find is you're like, oh, there's wild strawberries here. Like, I'm going to sit down. I'm just going (laughs) to, I'm going to eat them. Like it's, this is like a gift. And you look at the world a little bit differently because you just took one step closer to that. And now you think, all right, go back to when, you know, 9,000 years ago, where every day your focus is where are enough calories? So our little group can survive and you think you're going to have these this this total like divide between okay these are the people who go kill these really valuable food source animals for us versus somebody who's scuffling around for nuts or tubers or berries or whatever and think that those those roles wouldn't blend way more than you know it's like it's easy for us to look at this differentiation here but it doesn't really make that much sense
1: right and at the time, you know, uh, these communities were small, too. And so uh, I think it's unrealistic to think that not that not everyone in the community was involved in procuring resources for everyone else in the community. Um, and, you know, we're talking 30 to 50 people, probably max in these community, which would have been really big. Um, and so maybe even smaller than 30 or so. That's usually the good cutoff. Um, and so the argument here, too, and, and the example you gave is individual right? You're the individual going out and on the hunt. In this case, what our hypothesis is, is that these were communal hunts. And so the other reason why everyone's involved, so it probably wasn't the woman out there by herself hunting. It was probably, she was part of a larger community that would have either been sort of maybe doing a drive, which is something that we see today when they go and uh, when when modern communities in the area, Quechua or Aymara, go and, and hunt uh, deer or drive llamas and alpacas is they create these these drives and, and pens and they drive the animals, they start broad and then drive them into the pens. And then, you know, you, you can think it's an easy kill after that, right? So, especially with the potential accuracy of a, of a spear throw or of an atlatl um, which is, you know, far less efficient than the bow and arrow. So, uh, yeah, I think that's the point is that it's a very different perspective on hunting today, and even in the recent past, than it was in the deep past. Mm -hmm. And uh, those small communities probably would have relied much more heavily on the entire community. Well, and isn't that the, isn't
0: that an argument in support of your findings as well, that, that women and men shared roles, the the roles were blended more because the, the assumption was, okay, well, the women are going to raise the young. So they're going to be, you know, if you, if she has a baby, she's sticking around raising that baby, but it's, this is a community, there's almost like a, a hive mind mentality to these tribes where it's like the, the procurement of food, the protection of, of the, it's everybody's job. And, and I'm sure that they kind of, they found some of their own roles for what they were good at, but everybody pitched in, in a way that benefited the survival of everybody.
1: Right. And, you know, the reproductive argument is really ridiculous. Um, maybe if you're eight months pregnant Yes, it would be difficult to be, you know, running out after Vincunia or whatever the case. Um, but if you've got kids or even if you're breastfeeding or you're still only a few months pregnant, you there's no reason you're not out there with everyone else. I mean, uh, you know, you've got grandparents or or parents that can help out, you know, other community members. Um, and that's, you know, again, like you said, sharing roles in that case. So a young, strong individual, there's no reason they're not out joining the hunt and contributing to the benefit to the welfare of the community. And, and and i will say that reproductive argument is also a bit sexist in the sense that they just because women are pregnant or breastfeeding means they can't do anything else and that's also that's also crap i mean my wife for example was she was in the gym and running uh half marathons up until the third trimester of of my first son's birth and so you know as far as the physical restrictions it's lim- it's it's kind of overthought too
0: it, it, and again that go- that kind of goes back to the the lens, the modern lens we put on stuff and – and that's actually probably more of a carryover from like the 50s and 60s than anything is saying, okay, th- well, this is what women did then traditionally as their role – which is one little, 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 tiny, tiny slice of one, one little part of the overall picture. And we learn things are different and, you know, we learn in the past things were different. And so applying that, and I, I know people use this argument the other way too, where they say, Oh, you're just trying to earn woke points by, <laughs> by saying, okay, this was a woman hunter. And some people are like dismissive of it and be like, Oh yeah, big deal. It was a woman hunter. And it, there's, there's so much more to it than that.
1: Yeah. So this is, what's interesting is that, well, first I'll comment that, you know, in, in traditional societies today, you'll see that women are out working in the fields uh, or collecting up until the moment of birth. Uh, And sometimes they have birth in the field, they give birth in the field. I mean, that's just, so you're right. The perspective between our society and, and, and that reproductive biology and how it works with us is very different from pretty much the rest of the world. Um, But, The one thing that I will say is that when it comes to um, thinking about those roles, uh, yes, we got flack from the scientific community from and mostly what I will say is, you know, older white males (laughs) uh, about the idea that this was a woman and questioning the scientific value. But on the other side, we got a lot of flack on social media in particular uh, about the idea that we are putting this out there and that we're just pandering, like you said, to the to the woke crowd. Um, And they say, well, we've known that women have hunted in other societies for a long time. Yes, we absolutely have. But it's still not a predominant form of thought in the scientific world. And certainly, I would say, in the public domain as well, which is why this gathered gathered so much attention, right? It garnered so much media attention. And uh, and then so, you know, there were people who were sort of on the feminist side of things saying, this isn't news. You guys are pandering. Uh, And then... There were others that took it a a bit further, and there was a lot of media, negative media attention on social media surrounding the artist reconstruction of the Huntress, Uh, which first just annoys me because that means they were just – most people were just commenting on the image. But the artist reconstruction, if you go into the article, there's some supplementary information, and in there we lay out exactly how that artist reconstruction was composed. And it's based off of archaeological evidence, all of it. And there was a lot, a lot of attention paid to the quote unquote pink outfit she had on. And there were a lot of people that just focused on that and said, this is this is BS because pink is, you know, the gendered color for women in our society. So you're throwing that on. But the idea was she was found with a chunk of red ochre, that iron mineral. And it's commonly used to tan hides. And so that would give it this red pinkish hue. Uh, So, you know, there were other details that they'd pick on as well, including hairstyle and things like that and the type of the tunic and, you know, people called it a dress. But uh, I think the most attention that it got was really that calling out the pink argument. Yeah. And some people, they would said, great, pink, terrific, you know, uh, women, a lot of women own pink and they love it. And, you know, and others were like, oh, that's just that's you're reinforcing gender bias on the other side. So.
0: Yeah, you know, I just can't win for losing. <laughs> you, you can't, and I mean, you see the same thing. I I just randomly had to research for for a piece I was writing. Uh, what what cave drawings? What they use besides charcoal and iron oxide? And there's certain things that are like sort of ancestrally consistent that people recognize as dyes. And yeah. you, you know, you look at that and go, it, "I." You as somebody who who is so. You know, this is your life. It has to be so frustrating that, that not only did you not go looking for this discovery, this this like all science or most science came to you just doing your job and going, okay, this is cool. Let's check this out. And all of a sudden going, well, this is interesting that this is not what we expected. And right. now you go through all that work. <laughs> And then people are focusing on the color of the outfit of the artist's representation of the skeleton, it, it, like the, it's just, it's, it's gotta be maddening.
1: Yeah, it was a little frustrating, but you know, it, that's the nature, that's also the nature of social media. So I recognize that too, you know, people that didn't do the background research, you know, they didn't go in and check it out and say, okay, fine, you know, and they're just reacting to the picture and then they're reacting to other people's reactions and, you know, that's just, that's the nature of social media. And so you just got to kind of deal with it on that end. It was the academics or the apparent academics that were a little frustrating for me that, you know, they were citing sources and, and saying things like in particular, the idea that we were pandering, you know, um, whereas in other interviews, um, when they would talk to other academics in particular, female archeologists, for the most part, I think most of the female archeologists said, yes, this isn't, News in the sense that you know, women and many academics have known this for a long time, but it is news in the sense that it still is is going against the predominant paradigm, and that's what, of course, they all they've found frustrating their entire careers. So um, they were much more supportive in the sense that they'll say, "Yes, absolutely, it's not news." In the sense that everyone should know this, however, they don't. So it's good to 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 always reinforce that idea. Yeah, and it, there's a there's a difference between
0: somebody who's an expert in some sort of field questioning the findings and going, okay, is this, how, how do we know? Versus right. somebody who's coming into it going, well, I know what this is. So you must be wrong and I must be right. And there's, I'm, I'm curious your take on this. There's uh, there, it, even today, you know, there, the, the fastest rising de- demographic in hunting is women. You know, we, we've, I've talked about this a million times on here. We have enough 50 year old white guys hunting. Like we've, <laughs> we've hit that demographic hard. We got it. And th- the growth isn't coming from them. It's coming from other, you know, non-traditional people. And it's so weird because it, I, I don't know. I'm sure you saw something on this. We've, we've had Melissa Bachman on here. She's a friend of mine. She's the girl who killed the lion in South Africa and it yeah. blew up several years ago. Yeah, And I remember talking to a buddy of mine about it and, you know, she was getting death threats and had people camped outside her house and Ricky Gervais was calling her all kinds. It was, it was a wild deal. Right. And one of my buddies was like, I can turn on the sportsman's channel and watch five middle-aged white guys shoot lions every day and nobody cares. And so I wonder, maybe I'm way off base here, but I also wonder like, (sighs) it's just generally harder for society. I don't think like hardcore hunters care. I think they love it that, that men and women are doing this. And, and the idea of this, I think would probably be a lot easier for a lot of hunters to accept and go, yeah, that I, I get that. That makes sense. Everybody who can pitch in and, and use an adaladdle or whatever, let's, yeah, let's, let's yeah. get that animal down and eat it. Yeah. But society in general doesn't, isn't as accepting of women hunters now so it doesn't surprise me to hear that they'd they there would be sort of this uh, obstinate attitude toward maybe this new science coming out or these new findings because it's still
1: pervasive today right and that's why I think we had so much pushback from the academic community and well and I don't want to say so much I don't want to over exaggerate it it was probably a few. Individuals and, like I said, it seemed to be more related to the old guard. But yeah, that's the idea: is that they still have this idea sort of ingrained, and they're trying to use the evidence, the scientific evidence, to argue against us. And so that's why that was the primary motivation for not just simply reporting that we found this discovery, but uh, Randy, in particular, said we have to we have to reinforce it with some quantitative approaches. And so he said he went through the literature and found all the cases of early burials in the Americas, and then pulled out those that had any sex associated, uh, sex estimation associated with them, and basically reinforced the idea that this is not a one-off. It's not the only example. There are others which generally have been summarily dismissed in, in the literature in the past, um, including one that had, uh, you know, the ameliogenet analysis done. So it was clearly a woman. Only the X peptides were present in that individual's teeth. Uh, but they said, well, we're going to have to dismiss that because the, the tools found with it were, were of a hunter. And so it's something's got to be wrong. Well,
0: how how did they explain that away before then? Was it like, oh, it must be a religious significance or
1: it must have been a mixing of remains or what? The, I think if I recall, I think the argument was that it was um, it, the materials were wrong, uh, that they were they they were not placed intentionally in there that it wasn't a hunter in that case, because there are two other cases where, um, they're children and they're placed with, um, th- hunting tools as well. And so that's another one that people focus on and say, well, they're children, they couldn't have been out hunting. Um, but, uh, you know, again, that's where the, the symbology becomes important and, you know, it's potentially the role they would have contributed into the, into, in the future, you know, if they grew up, if they had not died, um, before they were old enough. Is it this is this is
0: probably kind of wild, but what why wouldn't children be hunters? Like, if you think about if you're growing up in a you know 30 member little tribe and yeah, the adults are probably more focused on bigger game, why wouldn't kids learn and be responsible for smaller stuff?
1: Oh, no. And they absolutely would have been for sure. No, these were babies. And so they they couldn't have physically gone out and hunted yet. (laughs) Okay, (laughs) Sorry. Yeah, I I should have specified that. Yeah. No, because you're right. Absolutely. I mean, you grow up in that community. Like I said, the kids would have been part of it too, especially if we're talking about a communal hunt. You know, kids can line up and block off and, and help that drive as well. So maybe they're not throwing the spear until later on, but they're certainly potentially contributing. And They're probably helping to carry meat and skins and, and, you know, whatever else is necessary back to camp or, you know. Yeah, they're, uh,
0: you know, you've got you've got kids. I've got kids. I uh, I'm really fascinated by the idea. My little girls, you know, they can be little princesses, right? Like they can do the whole Disney thing and and they're into fashion. And like, sometimes I'll see them carrying around a little purse. I'm like, what are you doing? But (laughs) at the same time, we'll go fishing or they'll go hunting with me. And there's a, and maybe this is partially my bias, but there's like an inherent desire to possess fish or to shoot a turkey. And like, not, not just like, they don't want to just go kill something or catch something, but there's like a possession, like, you know, they, they want that, like they want to hold it and and own it. And I'm like, that has to be, there has to be some, some really, you know, gene deep stuff going on there where even though they have all the food they need in their house and they're never, you know, they're not in danger of starving. They
1: still look at a pheasant or something and they like, they want to possess it. (laughs) That's great. Well, and I think certainly a part of that has to be the environment they're growing up in as well. Um, not that you're contributing to their fashion sense, but you're certainly contributing to their desire to, to, to hunt and and enjoy it, hopefully. I mean, that's really the critical element. And so you're right. Kids in these prehistoric communities would have grown up from as as soon as they could walk. They would have been starting to indoctrinate in that process and, and understanding that that's how the community survives. Um, so. I'm certain that, you know, yes, survival, it's basic human instinct. And that happens, especially when you're living in these communities. If if food is scarce, of course, you're going to want to do anything to, to survive and get that food. But growing up in that community where everybody's doing the same thing and everybody's contributing, then that just reinforces that, that I'm sure that desire as well.
0: Yeah. And it, you know, I think, I, I think one thing that, that is worth kind of always talking about when you're, when you're, when you get into something like this and you're talking about something that happened 9,000 years ago, which is like, you know, in the history of the world is very, very small, but in the history of us is, is significant. Not, not nearly as significant as it probably sounds to us. Cause we only live for a hundred years, but I always think about this from the perspective of, uh, you know, if somebody makes a comment about like Christopher Columbus and like, Oh, what an asshole he was. I'm like, well, that was 500 years ago, you, yeah. you, you know, like 200 years ago, you know, Lewis and Clark were going across North America thinking they were going to run into mastodons. And, you know, I mean, we, this is what we are looking at through our lives is such a small little tiny piece of what made us us. And so it's, it just makes it seem, and I'm sure I'm trying to like reinforce my own bias here, but like, it just makes it seem like, yeah, obviously we're going to look at you know, these, these remains or this history of hunter gatherers and, and view it through our own lens. But if we're honest about what we know about what's happened in the last 200, 1000 2000, 10,000 years, it's probably way more likely what you're saying than what we're saying through the 1950s lens.
1: Right. And I think, you know, when people would ask us, what's the major takeaway of this work? Um, to me, it's not that there's a woman hunter in the past. It's that, um, we need to be careful about our implicit bias. And that goes across the board, you know, uh, whether we're talking about social injustice or or gender bias. But the fact that gender bias is something that is impacting, and I would say across the board, again, for the public as well, but in particular for us, it's important to point out that that gender bias is impacting scientific perspective. And so if you're going to claim to do... Uh, you know a scientific research that's unbiased, you really need to question your own biases and make sure that you're not including them in your assessments and your analysis and defending your perspective, um, which is what we've just spent the last you know thirty <laughs> minutes doing but <laughs>
0: well yeah, and it, with your that 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 point's so important because the the implications of this aren't it's not crazy revelatory that women hunted 9,000 years ago. What it is, is, is more of a window into how we treat science that goes against our bias. And, and the, the stuff that you are working on is tied to things that we need today. Like I, I, I listen to a lot of, uh, a lot of people talk about like ancestrally consistent foods and why, you know, why is honey good for us? Well, everywhere there was honey, everybody ate it. Like we've been eating it for, so it's like, it's still good for us today. It's not, and we look at it like, oh, it's a superfood. Well, it's a superfood because we've been eating it. We've been knocking down beehives for however many thousands of years. And so these kind of things that you discover, like, like what you did, it's, yeah, it, they're focusing on the wrong thing, I think, and, and not what, where this can move us to and help us understand what's going on today by what what was actually true
1: in our past. Right. And that bias is the reason why it motivated us to do that meta-analysis uh, or Randy to do the meta-analysis because he said, there's no way we're going to get this published claiming that there's one individual that's a, a female hunter. Um, so he said, before we even think about submitting it anywhere for publication, we have to reinforce it as, as best we can. And so, you know, of course, uh, through quantitative analysis, that's that's sort of one of the best ways to be able to convince scientists that what you're talking about, even if you're projecting this social theory, um, that's one of the best ways to try and push them over that edge. Well, that's that's what impressed me
0: when I I have to do this. I have to read research papers once in a while. And I read that whole thing. And I'm like, it." I have to, so I don't sound like an idiot when I do this stuff. <laughs> it's it's a selfish motivation, partially, but what it always makes me realize it's the same thing when I've had to interview biologists, like you know, predator biologists or big game biologists or or whatever, uh, somebody who's a true expert in some, some field like that is I come to it and I go, oh, there's too many wolves or there's not enough wolves or whatever. And then I talk to somebody who's actually an expert in it or I read a paper by somebody and I go, this is way more nuanced and way more founded in in quality research and examples than just somebody kind of off the cuff saying, oh, they did this or they did that. And that's, that's what – Like I felt a little of your pain because when I read this, then I read some of the comments about this and I was like, you don't even read, they didn't even read the article about the paper, let alone the actual research paper. And they're just, they're just spouting off. And I'm like, ah, you, you have the opportunity to learn what actually happened here. Why this, these statements were made and these findings came out. It's just, I I felt just a tiny, tiny little bit of your pain. (laughs)
1: Well, I appreciate that. Yeah. And there were a few people who who, you know, responded and said, you need to read the article. You know, they said, if you read the article, you'll see the the drawing is founded in, uh, you know, archaeological evidence. Um, Or, you know, there were others. Again, the responses vary. And so you could just see the diversity of people who engage in social media. Um, But like I said, it. Yeah. It's frustrating just because that's, we put this out there to inform people and especially something like this that can go get a broader audience and, and inform the public about our discoveries. That's exciting. Um, so yeah, it's a little upsetting, but that's, like I said, I just have to, I'm, I'm pretty accept- accepting of the nature of social media and, you know, yeah, it's a shit show. It is what it is. <laughs> yeah. Right. It, yes. it's, yeah. it sucks. But yeah, it, well, and people can hide behind it and yeah. post their, their shitty comments and then move yeah. on. Right. You know?
0: Yeah. It's, it's not good for us. Um, What, what did this, two questions. Have you name? I know, I know that this, this woman has a scientific name in relation to where she was found. Have you given her a name? Like Uh, in your head, are
1: you like, oh, this is
0: Matilda or no?
1: No. And I think part of that is, I'd say there's two reasons. One is that most of my work is with um, uh, Native American communities in the U.S., and the relationship between uh, archaeologists in particular and particular bioarchaeologists like myself, who work with the ancestral remains of these native communities, um, doing things like naming a skeleton is extremely offensive to most native communities. And so those sorts of things, you know, I've since I began doing this research years ago, um, my attitude toward working with human remains has has changed dramatically. And that is because of my working closely with native communities. Um, and so in this case, we were working with and so that's one reason why I wouldn't, you know, and, and the, you know, it was a, a field school. So there were university students there. And, um, you know, I tell my students that, look, you got to think that's disrespectful. You know, that's someone's ancestor. Think about if it was your grandmother and, and somebody call them, you know, Franco or whatever. Um, but the other side of it was that. In this case, we were working with the local community. We were in their fields. They were working with us. I mean, we paid them to help excavate the uh, the site and the burials. Um, and they didn't do that. They didn't give her a name or because in in hindsight, it would have been inaccurate, right? If it would have yeah. been a man's name based on the initial assumptions, it would have been inaccurate, but they didn't do it. They chose not to do it. And they're very interested in they recognize these are potentially their ancestors, and they're very interested in learning what they can about who their ancestors were and how they survived on the Altiplano, you know, nine thousand years ago. Um, but they didn't do it, and so to me, that's just another cue to follow sort of that that ethical perspective that I've developed over the years of my experience. But I know that wouldn't be the case for a lot of a lot of people who haven't had the experiences I've had.
0: Yeah. Well, yeah, I know. Now you make me feel bad for even asking it.
1: Uh, no, no, no. It's a great question because I, I mean. Look, a good example, you sort of – you alluded to a great example of it earlier in that Utsi, the iceman, right, where he was an example of someone who was crossing the Alps and he felt he succumbed to his injuries and died in the Alps, right? And then they discovered him when the ice melted and he was he was found again. That's a great example where that is a descendant of modern communities in Italy or in, in Switzerland and so – and they were very interested in him, in fact, started a legal battle who owned Utsi. Um, And so there they gave him a name. They gave him a name to represent who he was. And that name is stuck. No one finds it offensive. It's not an issue among those communities, but they're potentially his ancestors or his descendants. And so to some degree, you know, um, and so it's a very different story than, you know, me, the old white guy uh, working on Native American skeletons. So it's a very, you know, like I said, it's, I I think in those cases, you, you have to, It's always contextual. And so, um, you know, that's, that's where I think it's important to recognize that I wouldn't just blindly apply that, that approach everywhere I work, Um, you know, and in the old world, for example, it's a totally different story.
0: Well, so uh, uh, before I ask you the follow up question, then there is there, is there like a moral gray area or an ethical gray area here as far as even digging them up then? Because, I mean, if you're working with the, the people from there and, you know, you're, you're making the assumption that these people are – they're obviously more closely related to the person you're digging up than you are, you know, coming in from Arizona or wherever. Is there do – you, do you run into that when remains are found?
1: In, in the U.S., yes. But that's, um, but that's a different story than this project. And so, again, the project was done not only just with permission of the community but with the community itself. And like I said, they're interested in understanding – um, the nature of the, their ancestors. And so in, in that case, it's not an issue. In the US, Canada, um, Australia, for example, places where there's colonial history of the relationship between, you know, uh, European colonists and, and Native Americans or, or indigenous communities, there is a big difference. And so um, what I would say is science for science sake, that runs into human remains in the US, for example, um, is problematic but in most of the cases what i have what i deal with are um archaeological compliance related to legislation associated with um you know clearing archaeological resources before like i, I mentioned a strip mall earlier you're building a strip mall or a new road you got to make sure that you're not digging up something really important archeologically and in those cases everything's going to be destroyed and of course if you encounter ancestral human remains you want to remove them And then most of the time what happens, particularly in Arizona, but through a lot of the United States, what happens is you communicate with the local tribe and you return those remains to that tribe. Um, And so they can then reinter them or do what they, you know, is culturally appropriate within that tribe. And so that's a lot of what I end up dealing with here in the U.S., for example. So it's very it's it's sort of a distinction between the research that we do to answer these big questions, these big research questions versus. The compliance and dealing with human remains in that sense, in which we are um, preventing the destruction of those remains, and then we are trying to return them to the communities uh, from which they belong. Mm-hmm. So again, there's
0: it. It would be easy to assume somebody. You know walking across their field sees a skull poking out or a femur bone and it's like let's call them up and dig the whole thing up but there's a lot more going on than right than, than exactly just, yeah
1: and, and the, the history of that throughout the united states is the reason why now we have federal legislation that was passed in 1990 that specifically says that you can't excavate native american remains without permission or you know and you can't it's illegal to bring them across state lines you can't sell them um so it was, but it, that wasn't passed until 1990. That's the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act. And that was a critical, what most people recognize as uh, human rights legislation. And in this case, the connection between modern Native communities and their ancestors and recognizing that they have a say in what happens to the, their ancestral remains, that ends up being a human rights issue, at least from their perspective. So, mm-hmm. but like I said, that didn't get passed until 1990. And, and, you know, museums all over the, the US and the world are, uh, replete with native american skeletons as a result of this long colonial history of of excavating doing archaeology and and collecting native american remains yeah i mean you bump into that too with just even
0: picking up arrowheads on federal land and it's it's not uh, as simple as just take home whatever you want you know or you know in, in the southwest the pottery shards and you know there there's there's a lot more there you need to know before you just you you go out and bring a bunch of stuff home um, what did, what did she have in her kit? What, what did, what did all did she have? Cause she had quite a bit of different stuff in there.
1: Yeah. Uh, I think there were 24 different tools in the kit. Um, there were, I think about four projectile points. And so those would have been the tips that went on the end of, not the end of the shaft, but usually the atlatl or the spear thrower has the handle that the shaft goes into, but then there's also a four shaft. And so, uh, the foreshaft is where you haft the point onto, and that's what basically gets replaced. And so the shafts you can reuse and reuse. It's the foreshaft that gets embedded in the animal so that your entire spear isn't, isn't stuck in there. Um, so there were several points. Um, I'm, and I'm sure there would have been organic material. And he thinks that probably because things were so concentrated in the burial that perhaps it was in a bag, uh, a leather or, uh, you know, a woven sack. Um but all that organic material of 9,000 years is gone. So there could have been, there could have been four shafts. There could have been leather strips. There could have been other things that, you know, used in the hafting. So there are projectile points. There were several forms of knives, um, for cutting the flesh, part of the butchering process. There were several forms of scrapers, um, for scraping, you know, the flesh for processing. Like I mentioned, the, the red ochre lump. Um, or the, the hematite or the iron oxide to, again, part of the processing um, to, um, to tan the hide. And then there were a couple of sort of larger tools, which we think were probably for either uh, potentially smashing open bone, getting it to marrow, or um, for flaking uh, new t- stone tools. So you know, that's the great thing about stone tools is that, uh, you know, rocks are all over the place, but only certain types of rocks are good for, for flaking and making tools. Um, so you need to have the tools to make the tools with you as well. And for example, if you, you know, especially with knives, if you're cutting and cutting and cutting, even rock, it gets dull pretty quickly. And so you have to do some more flaking on it, you know, whether it's microscopic flakes or tiny, you know, or even just sharpening along with another stone uh, to, to keep going. You know, stone tools and hides are not the most ideal uh, for butchering. No. But but what you're saying is that she had it, – it, was her kit consistent with other kits you found? Well, yes and no. Um, you know, there's only been so – there's so few found. And in most cases, the argument is that it's a few projectile points. And that's usually what ends up constituting the hunter's kit. Um, so this was a true hunter's kit in the sense that it had everything from beginning to end. There are a few burials from from that meta-analysis that Randy did that do have more materials. But I think I'd have to go back and look, I think this is one of the most complete in the sense that it's that beginning to end process uh, that that is encapsulated in that kit, which is the other thing that made it so amazing for us,
0: yeah, and and that's one of the things that makes your your argument more airtight because it's not just a couple of points. it's it's beginning to end. It's kill. To skin, to tanning, to to even if that is, you know, what what you said for breaking open the bone marrow, like you're you're talking the whole thing, and so it seems far less likely that that would have been a coincidental situation where you know maybe there could have been people could look at that and say, well, if there's a couple stone points found there, maybe it's just because the location was where a lot of people. Lived and those stone points just ended up there, just from a quantity perspective. But there's too much going on there again to be totally random,
1: right? And in in the case of the other individual that had a couple of projectile points with them, the question for us was: Were these placed with this person, or did he die from those? Are those you know buried in his body, and then we find them in in the discovery? And so that's where the context and making sure that we excavated as carefully as possible to be able to reconstruct perhaps how they were associated in the grave was critically important um, because, again, that's an easy one where people would have said, well, that guy was just shot to death and then buried. you know They didn't take the points out before they buried him. Uh, and that happens a lot. I mean, you know when it comes to violent deaths in the past, uh, you often find projectile points embedded in individuals and they're buried with them. Uh, but again, an obviously very different process than placing these points or the four shafts or whatever, with those individuals as part of the the mortuary ritual, you know, the burial process.
0: So when you describe that, and that never occurred to me, I would, I would always think like you would, you would identify a violent cause of death by something being embedded in the bone or a shattered bone or some, some obvious, but if somebody hits you with a spear and the point ends up in your heart, it's just going to end up settled to wherever your body was and not be as connected as, as obviously connected to your death, even though it was, you know, located in your rib cage or something or something close to that. So that, that there's probably such a, you have to be so careful about these findings because when you, when you describe where the kit was and how it's located and how the body was kind of positioned, one careless move, could could change the entire look of that remains site and and color your findings or or just reduce like the validity of what you you could find in
1: in like one kick of a boot. Right. Right. And the the introduction, you know, the the plow in this case would have had a major potential effect, you know, moving artifacts if it disturbed the burial itself. And so that could have changed our interpretation. Um, The other is for me, you know, I'm. As a professor, I'm teaching students how to dig and how to do archaeology. And it's really tough when they make a really cool discovery like that, not to just pick it up and be like, look what I found. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And like, no, you cannot move it. You know, get excited. Yes. Jump out of your pit, run around, but do not move it. Because that location is critically important to to document every which way from Tuesday. Mm -hmm. Do you think –
0: well, let me ask you this. Have you – Have you found this anywhere else? Like, are there any other sites where you found this and you've went, yep, that was a, that was a woman hunter from the beginning of the Holocene or, you know, a long, long time ago?
1: Not in, not in the research that we've done or that I've done. Um, I think it's because they are so rare uh, in that case. Uh, And, you know, uh, the first thing is rare is to find artifacts with individuals. Well, uh, let me back up. It's rare to find burials this early. I mean, you know, like I said, preservation across the Americas, you know, we found 429 across the Americas, which is a lot. But compared to the thousands and thousands from, you know, 500 or a 1,000 years ago, uh, of course, it's it's a drop in the bucket. Then there's so few that are buried with anything. And then the last one was really for us, um, you know, identifying those that had any sex associated with them, you know, sex estimations associated with them, and so it, that's where the sample gets so small. Um, but with that sample, we're still able to say something. You know, it's it's big enough to be able to do some analysis, but not not big enough to be able to make sort of these broad sweeps.
0: Um, the 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 rarity of this, the the entirety of the finding is that did that contribute to uh sort of the the inherent bias that okay we know hunter gatherers, we know hunters were the men, we know gatherers were women, because there was no expectation that you were going to find anything different because the odds of a discovery of a skeleton like this with the with the artifacts with it and the the you know dental enamel or whatever, like all of those pieces had to be there and they're not there most of the time. So was it kind of easy to just to brush this off and go, yeah, we, we know what we're gonna get because we know what we've got.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's, that, that was the real challenge was the idea that, um, it is so rare and you're right. All of the, it sort of was the perfect storm. We had to have all of those things together, but sort of, we came at it from the other perspective in which we weren't expecting any of this. And so as we, you know, each step along the way, we continued to be surprised until we got to the final conclusion with, which was what we had. And then that's when the realization came that, um, you know, this is important it's one of the few instances that are really secure compared to the others and we need to do the got to do the legwork to really convince people um what
0: we found so it's scientifically you you're able to look at this and go this one's special like regardless of what you come, regardless of what the conclusion is when you see this you go holy cow there, this this has the this is the opportunity to learn something we might not have known before just because of how rare those conditions are
1: right exactly I mean, yeah, step one, it was rare because there are so few skeletons that date to this time period. Two, because out of the entire site, there were only two individuals that had materials and this one had 24 independent pieces of material, you know, of artifacts. Uh, and then the, that last one being that for sure a woman, you know, whether it was through my analysis and, or the, the, the protein analysis.
0: So how, how much of a, of a rush is it to get that phone call now? Like we got a new one, come on down. <laughs> It's
1: exciting. Well, and like I said, especially since working with Randy over these past few years, um, there are numerous exciting finds that we've seen. And, and the fact that he keeps pushing the, the temporal barrier back, that he keeps looking for earlier and earlier inhabitants of the Altiplano is really exciting because I think at this point we don't have any, and nor did we when we went into it. Um, well, maybe Randy does. I don't want to speak for him. I didn't have any particular expectations about what I would find with these individuals. Um, and you know, I've done analysis all over the Americas and, um, and so I didn't think anything particular, especially foragers. I didn't expect grave goods. I didn't expect anything too ridiculous in the sense of how they would have impacted their skeletons. I expected some robust individuals that lived till mid age or so. And, you know, uh, would have had some interesting marks in their bones. Uh, so the fact that we find one thing after another, after another, Uh, really tells me that these are, it's an exciting area to work. Um, Just the people living in that area were doing really dynamic things really early on. And, um, you know, I I hope Randy finds some stuff that's even earlier that we can look at. And and sort of the nice thing is that we are developing a long-term perspective of what people were doing in that area.
0: You know, there's a lot
1: that's known. Once agriculture develops and how people adapt to that area and it's the home of the Tiwanaku culture and then later the Inca. And so, you know, there's a lot that we know about that time period that those those classic civilizations in in highland South America. But these early foraging peoples uh, out there living on the landscape, hunting and gathering and and domesticating both plants and animals uh, in this environment. I mean, it's just a really dynamic story of human survival. It's it reminds me of I'm I'm kind of like a
0: I got I don't know how to put it. I'm kind of like a space geek. Like I love the idea that we're sending probes to Mars and we're sending we we can like I I was reading last night there there's there's a probe that's going to land in Mars in February that is going to collect soil samples and they're planning on sending something to collect those samples and bring them back. And I'm just like it, it, what it makes me think of is you know like you mentioned okay we know a lot about or we're learning a lot about people who lived a thousand years ago and 2000 and like recent stuff and we've we're digging we're we're digging deeper and have, we have better science now and better methods to learn okay this this goes back further than we thought and we can we can get better information about this it's kind of the same thing when we started space exploration it's like okay there's some planets there's some stuff going on and now you look at what they're capable of and what they know and what they know about the galaxies and and it's just incredible how that expands with technology and how how quickly we learn what we thought was just silly it was just wrong and you know you're working with what you have at the time but how this stuff advances is just incredible
1: yeah and it does it is mind-boggling in that sense too and like i you know uh the advancement of of science is is at an exponential rate and so um, I will – side note, I will say that I think that the Mars stuff that you're talking about is also produced out of the University of Arizona. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. We, we sent the Mars rover a couple of years ago, and so there's been a recent initiative. So I don't know if that's specifically the one. I know we're still working on it. So. There, I don't remember
0: what it was called. I just – I just, I read about it last night. And I'm like, I cannot believe – I, you know – it's amazing. I know this is way off topic, but you look at some of the probes that were sent out that are still sending information back, and the the Mars rovers. They sent those out with like a ninety day window was their plan. Like we'll be lucky if they don't uh, lose power and get covered in dust and and ruin. And then you look at how long they lasted and how beneficial it was to just get in between these windows of storms and have the right the right wind blowing and keeping the solar panels. And I mean, it's just like I can't when I see how. Like when you mentioned social media and how shitty people can be and how like dismissive we are on new information i'm like those people exist in the same world as somebody who designed or helped design a rover that's on freaking mars driving around right now sending us pictures i like i can't believe that those two th- those two kind of people live on the same world like
1: we're, we're the same thing it's crazy yeah <laughs> well that's human nature i mean and that's one of the things that is also exciting about this work is that we're documenting the variation, variability of of humans as a species, and that includes what we do in the future as well. Um, and you know, sending rovers to Mars, being going to the moon and back—I mean, it's just—it really is. I, I agree. I'm I'm always constantly amazed.
0: It, it, it's really cool, and it, I love the I, I love what you're doing and what what you're capable of learning. If you pay attention to like nutritional science, and you know the the, the vegan versus carnivore diet versus you know, whatever, and you see how much of this is all interconnected, and what we can learn about our history and how important it is today. Like we we were talking off air about some genetic differences people have and their reaction to coronavirus, and how like it's not a one size fits all thing, and we know this. Obviously, we know that it you know it varies wildly your immune response and things like that, but. What we can learn from these discoveries about what we are today and what's good for us today and what we need and what we should be eating or how we should be exercising. This is not like a disconnected thing. This is all, it might seem like a long runway between you, you know, looking at a little kit that's on a a 9,000 year old skeleton, but there, there's a lot
1: going on there. Well, and I think that's an important perspective because that's one of the reasons why, for me at least, that's one of the reasons why I do this job, why I do this uh, research is it really should be applicable in some way. To me, science for science sake, of course, can be important and understanding our natural environment and our world around us or the human environment is is critical. But to me if I can't find a way to to make it applicable to our current understanding of how it might benefit humans in some way, um, I think that's a critical element. And that's one of the other reasons why I got into bioarchaeology in particular. My focus tends to be really on understanding human biology in the past to apply it to modern perspective and how it may benefit us. And so, like you said, uh, exercise, um, diet, um, genes, all those things that contribute to health and disease are all critical. And if we don't do that research into the past, we can't we can't as uh contextualize our present as well because of course we've inherited bodies that have evolved over millions of years or even just over the past 70,000 as modern humans so it it makes a big difference to be able to to take what you learn from the ground literally and then apply it to our our perspective today
0: yeah and it and it's you know obviously you know, we've talked about biases a lot in here and I'm looking for this to be true but I believe it to be true and it, when you look at uh you know I, I've mentioned this a bunch of times they've they've studied mental health you know to the nth degree and there's still obviously a lot to learn but one study out of Europe that that took into account all kinds of different factors diet exercise SSris what kind of you know what were you taking what were you doing exercise in green space made people the happiest it was the the single most single largest contributor to a boost in in being happy and content and when you look at what we have going on today this in this world we have unlimited entertainment that's not making us happy we have unlimited interaction in a weird way with people that's not making us happy and we can look into our history and and go okay what, what what could I do for myself that's actually gonna make me happy? You can go out for a run in the park. For us in our audience, it's going and sitting in a tree stand and hope you see some deer or something. Simple, simple stuff that comes from, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of years of doing these things and eating a certain way, and our bodies you know, have have become what they are because of that. And we can give ourselves what we need or we can fight against it and be unhappy. And it's like, it's this weird, there's like a weird dichotomy there. And it's just, sometimes it's like s- such a simple answer to so much stuff, even though we're highly variable as individuals.
1: Right. But it's convenient. Well, sure. Yeah. It's, <laughs> li- listen. Like, I mean it's so much more convenient to run out to McDonald's than it is to sit in a tree stand for six hours. <laughs> it is. And, you know,
0: I don't know how to put this. There, I, I'm,
1: I'm, I agree a hundred percent. Like I said, to me, like that's that's how we've evolved as humans, and that's that's what I'm saying. And so, when you know our biology, like you said, our psychology, all of that has evolved over millions of years, or like I said, even over the past seventy thousand to really have leave, live that kind of lifestyle. That foraging lifestyle is really our foundation. It's our biopsychological foundation, and so everything we've done since then has really not to say fight against it, um, but in particular, in recent decades, uh, as we've entered into this, you know, this technological environment, yeah, we're putting ourselves at odds with our, our biology and our psychology. Uh, And you're right, that's, that is a real problem. And that it it does seem like a simple solution to just say, get out there and live that sort of lifestyle.
0: Well, it's, it's not, I don't, I don't mean to minimize anybody's, anybody's choices, but it's, it's, it's sort of like getting in shape you like you mentioned your wife your wife running half marathons and it's it's not we we like the idea of oh i'm going to run a marathon i'm like do you know how many years you are out on that if if yeah. you were super disciplined and could get get past the 90 100 days of of misery like it's it's a step by step process and so what I always think about is like the little things, right? Like, you know, we're not going to step away completely and go live in a hut and be happy. That's not going to happen. But when you think about like the research into, you know, the gut microbiome and how refined sugars change things and like how connected your mind and body are, and you, you look at this and you go, you can make better decisions. And You know, one thing that I always, I take like an immense amount of pride on, like when we talked about with, with my daughters, when they want to possess a fish or something, I always think like we, people who are anti-hunting or, uh, you know, they don't, they, they hate me for what I do. They don't understand like the, you know, like what they're putting into their bodies and how they're living their lives. And like, I'm, you know, I, I don't know how to say this. So it sounds like a dick. (laughs) I'm going to say it anyway.
1: Well, it's your podcast so. Yeah,
0: yeah. And they're not going to listen to this anyway, but yeah. you you get to a point in your life where you 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 inherently kind of know some of this stuff. You know when you're making the decisions that are going to make you happier or not. And looking at some of the science that you're doing and some of the research that's out there, it's like a little little guide like, okay, this is what this is what we did and needed to do to survive 5,000, 10,000 years ago. You probably hold on to more of that than you think. And it's really might be as simple as going and spending more time around trees than staring at your Instagram feed and getting pissed off at people. It's, cra- it's crazy, but that's that's reality.
1: Yeah. Well, and you think about the difference in obviously, you know, the taste between game meat versus the cow that's raised in a feedlot. But think about the quality of the meat behind it and what's actually going your body between those two. I mean, it's a major difference. There's actually some really interesting research that's just now coming out in, um, Evolutionary medicine, looking at how your body when you're young can adapt to basically a shitty diet, but as you get older, you become less able to adapt to it, and um, and so it seems like you know the arguments for a paleolithic lifestyle and in particular paleolithic diet may not be as applicable for younger people, but as you get older and you start reaching that older threshold, your body can't deal with that stuff as well anymore, Uh, and that's really the time that people should be transitioning into that kind of diet, that kind of lifestyle. Um, So and and you're right. It's all inherent in biology. And the reason and the idea isn't that we're adapted to deal with these modern shitty diets when we're young. It's the idea that our bodies can deal with it, that we can compensate and push all that crap out of our system, despite the fact that we keep pushing more of it in. It's that when you get older, your body can't respond that way. And as a result, if you're not compensating, you're going to be in real problem. Yeah, well, you can see this. I mean it, I'm sure it's
0: metabolism I'm sure there's genetics I I'm, I'm sure there's a whole bunch of stuff but like if you if you wanted to make my little girls overweight it'd be hard to do. It's just like a it's like a puppy, right like if you get a lab puppy or a GSP puppy, yeah. it's really hard to to get them over like you have to try but you know you get 30 40 years old not that hard like yeah. now you have to try not to get there and right. there there's there's a huge change there I, I think that stuff. I think that stuff is so fascinating. Like, I, th- I think, I think it's such a shame. And I don't want, I, you know, like I, we keep going negative here, but we have so much amazing information coming out about that stuff, and it's it's like cutting edge. Like we're learning these things, and it's so easy to dismiss them or just because of the like the the era of fake news and just be like, okay, well that that can't be true because I don't want it to be true, and yeah. yet we have in this weird time. Better information than we've ever had before. And we're going to be wrong about stuff because science moves and we're, we're going to see things change and dietary science is going to change. Nutritional science is going to change. But what we have right now is better than we've ever had before. And we have a blueprint to take care of ourselves and and find our happiness. and And then it's just kind of up to us to get there. Right. Yeah. No. Absolutely. So, anyway, we we went all over the map here. People are like, <laughs> I thought this was a hunting podcast. Uh, yeah. Right. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so much fun, <laughs> but, you man. Know, you are what you eat, right? So. <laughs>
0: well, I th- I Point think is hunt to eat <laughs> I I love. I, like I told you before, I was the I was so excited to have you on because this is such a deviation from a lot of the content we produce. But I think it's so interesting to know. You know, like I I literally. And I I get to hunt a lot. Like my life is, I I do that a lot. And so I have no complaints, but if I have a couple weeks stretch during the season where I'm, I'm in the office most of the time, or I don't get to get out, I'll get real. I'll I'll become a little bitch. And my wife will go, listen, dude, go sit in a tree stand, go take the dog, go chase some pheasants, something like, I know you need this. And I always think like, yeah, like I just, I can't help it. I'm just wired this way. And our, our listeners, you know, they reach out to me all the time and they're they're the same thing. They're they're wired for this. And I'm sure there are people out there who really aren't. And I, and I know that, and that's okay. But I love, I love the idea of learning about people that had to do this when they, you know, 9,000 years ago. And I, and I guarantee they like that woman, those remains, she was probably fist pumping and stoked when she, when she, you know, swung that addle addle and she stuck one of those, those, uh llama type critters or what I forget what they're called she was probably cheer into and probably got a huge adrenaline rush from being successful as a hunter
1: oh yeah absolutely and I, you know that's the other thing that sort of that the other thing the, the fact that she was buried with this kit again you know I go back to the fact that she must have been important in some way to to be worthy of having that kit buried with her and so whether she was the best hunter or just simply you know the the, the most rambunctious, you know, who knows? But again, it just reinforces the idea that she was definitely important.
0: Well, there had... It's it's so safe to assume she, there was so much value to her in that group, right? Yeah. And that's that's what's, like, she had to be a producer. Like, like she wasn't... You know, we have we have this world today where you can be a Kardashian and start out famous just by being hot and not offer anything. You know, it might maybe right. they grow into that role and do something. Like I don't, I don't want to be too judgy, it actually but
1: make people dumber by watching. Yeah, you yeah you can go you
0: can go the other way with it, but in a time where you're surviving and and you know I don't know what the what the average life expectancy was there, but it probably wasn't that unusual for an 18 year old to die then. You know, I mean just. Just probably wasn't. And for her to have those those artifacts with her, it's just like, what what, what did she do? Like, how, how much value did she? Because there has to be something to it.
1: Right. Yeah. And I think that's our baseline interpretation is that it reflects her value to that community that they would put that material uh, in there with her
0: yeah listen listen buddy i love it Uh, i'm so glad you came on the podcast i hope we can get you on again when you make another gigantic discovery and you uh shake the old guard to its foundation um thank you so much for coming on jim
1: yeah no i really appreciate you having me it's been a pleasure
0: thank you so much for listening i can't honestly put into words how much i appreciate anyone taking the time to check into the hunt for real podcast if you like what you heard today Please subscribe so you can get the latest episodes each week as we drop them. You can also find us at HuntForReal.com, our YouTube channel where we'll be putting up tips and films throughout the year, as well as through all the usual suspects when it comes to social media. Again, thank you so much for listening.